Hi there. A quick note before you start listening to this episode. As the podcast has evolved, we've come to focus more directly on the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizational life. The episode you're currently listening to focuses more broadly on the topic of creating purposeful organizations. So if that's what you're after, then listen on. But if you're looking for more DEI-focused content, we suggest skipping forward a few episodes and looking for the ones titled Inclusion at Work. Happy listening. How can business be successful in the future unless we are serving all stakeholders? We absolutely have to create value for the environment, for society and our broadly defined society as not just employees and customers, communities, but it's also the people we don't serve, the people who aren't customers or employees, maybe because they can't afford to be. And um, put all that together, serving the planet, right? Serving the planet in a very human as well as environmental sense. And through that, I thought, well, maybe you can be even more successful as a business for shareholders too. Welcome to the Leaders for Good podcast. How can businesses and leaders evolve to create more value for all stakeholders? Well, in this episode, we sit down with John Lydon, senior partner at McKinsey, to discuss that very topic. John is a man with a depth of experience in business and consulting. He was Australia's managing director for McKinsey for six years. And he has a deep passion for helping businesses create more value for society as well as shareholders. In this episode, John unpacks his experiences from taking a one-year sabbatical to deep dive into the world of purpose-led businesses. And he shares how his experiences during that year have shaped his thinking on businesses embedding purpose and the role of leaders in that journey. This was a really rich conversation with John, and we hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed having it. So, without further ado, we bring you John Lydon. So, jumping off on the uh, the usual usual point, John, how do you find yourself doing the work that you do, and how would you how would you describe the work you do? Well, if it's being a senior partner at McKinsey then there's a sort of traditional answer. If I describe myself as helping leaders evolve their organizations, their businesses to create more value for all stakeholders, so that's the environment, that's society, as well as obviously shareholders, then guess what? There's the same answer. So I'll, <laughs> I'll uh, start back, because it's quite unlikely that I would end up here. I suppose everybody says that, but in my case, I feel it's extremely unlikely when I'm a... Uh, you know, 12 year old maybe, I am growing up in the UK in South Lincolnshire. Pretty ordinary life. My mother was a hairdresser. My father worked for a potato company. There was always plenty of potatoes in the kitchen. He coordinated all the uh, transport of potatoes for this small potato hauling business, right? So I uh, had many, many stories, like discovering one of the people who'd driven for him for 30 years didn't actually have a driving license. Well, you Amazing. mean not, not for a truck? No, not even for a car. Uh, so, yeah, happy uh, sort of childhood, a lot of love, wasn't a lot of money, but there was a lot of love in that family. Um, my father died tr quite tragically when I was 13. So I start the story at 12, but really there are a lot of changes at 13 um, of an unusual cancer. It happened very quickly. It was terrible, obviously. When I look back on it, 
as well as all the heartache and the loss, that there, there was a lot of learning. And I really now started to learn a few things. And he uh, had given me great gifts. And also just in that process, you really grow up. So you grow up fast. Uh, my mom carried on working. Uh, obviously, I had to start doing some things to earn money, which started out doing your typical, I think it was two pounds an hour you were lucky to get in the, back in the day in the 80s in uh, the UK. Uh, so I found out actually being a bit more entrepreneurial, doing some things, buying and selling, you know, getting a stall on a market or buying and selling computer games, which were all the, the uh, rage at the time. And that was a lot more fun. You actually made more than two pounds an hour. And I learned a lot through doing it as well and met some interesting people. So I think that's really when I started to love learning, not just the type you do at school, which was always a fine but not that inspiring place to go, but also the things you can do outside school and the things you do with people that you meet and places that you go. And then I think I was lucky to get to university uh, that was, you know, like most people of that generation, I guess, a first for family and, and frankly, broader community. But what a wonderful eye-opening experience. And for somebody who's just learned to love new experiences and new people, you can imagine that even though it was not a particularly glamorous university and certainly was not a very glamorous course, just an immense amount of growth, learning and fun. And how does the how does the connection to purpose weave itself into your story do you, is there a particular time or an event or do you remember anything that kind of brought that online for you or is it more of a kind of gradual peeling away of the onion so there were Steps forward and steps back. I, I started pretty far back. I think I was still at that point of Maslow's hierarchy where just getting the money to survive was quite yeah. important. And then I joined a wonderful organization, but not one that at the time had a huge amount of purpose. So out of university, I joined Citibank in the UK. And I loved the learning I did there. And they were innovating in all sorts of ways, particularly technology, which in 1990 uh, was a new kind of white hot thing. Obviously, nothing like it is today. But to be in a global organization that was prioritizing things like technology and lean manufacturing, and I was in the operations part. They wouldn't actually trust me with any of the real money. But what a terrific learning environment and also a humbling environment to be the new kid who didn't really know, who hadn't really got any experience of business or much of life, uh, to be honest. But there's one thing for sure. Citibank was not a really purpose-driven company then. Mm. I think the purpose at the time, as I was told by my direct manager, was to increase shareholder value. And they were pretty good at that. Mm. But uh, yeah, that was much more me learning. And from there, going to business school, I went to INSEAD in France and started to see there were some things going on. There were bigger perspectives. There were bigger systems out there. Even early thinking in things like social justice and environment, which you'd do alongside financial accounting and strategy. Mm. Uh, but it was a real broadening experience where I come out of city with a lot of technical skills and I started to now see the world in different ways. And from there, starting at McKinsey, and I started just over 25 years ago, more on that later, uh, but 1996, and you know, not a typical McKinsey hire, I'd say, but I loved the people that I'd met, mm. the ones who were my colleagues at business school, the ones who I met through the interview process, whereas you know, I was very skeptical about the value consulting would add mm. from my experience of having had consultants around in my time at Citibank. 
So I thought, let's go and explore. What's the worst thing that can happen? And I think it was really there. And in my early engagements that I started to get a connection to purpose and the need to find an and. And the and clearly is business has to be successful, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it also has to be sustainable and it has to be purposeful. And I suppose my start at McKinsey were pretty up and down, first couple of projects, quite traditional. Then the third one was really interesting, and it's that's where I think my sense of purpose became a bit more unlocked. Mm. It's funny you mentioned uh, Maslow. I'm reading a book on Abraham Maslow at the moment, and um, quite a misunderstood chap. Um, a fun fact, he never drew a pyramid. That was, uh, that was, that was a consultant's fault who took his model and made it into a pyramid, but also self-actualization gets a bad rap sometimes as being quite selfish. You know, I'm just, I'm just about actualizing, actualizing myself. But if you read Maslow's work a bit more deeply, it was about purpose. It was about adding value. It was about the collective whole as well. Um, just, it, <laughs> just injecting some, uh, injecting some fun Maslow facts in there, in there. But um, it, and consultants can be blamed for putting pyramids in a lot of things where they don't belong. Should have, we should have left them to the ancient Egyptians? Pyramids and two by two matrices. Yeah, fun, fun times. Um, but yeah, this this particular project, and it was one of these. And I've always learned most when I've done the ones no one else wanted to do. Right, that were bottom of the staffing list, and I kind of felt a little bit sorry for the beleaguered uh, mining company, five hours train ride from London, that uh, needed some consulting because it was really going backwards fast and about to close, about to go downhill. Um, so I, I took it right, and I did that. Um, found a community that was absolutely dependent on this industry, which was a weird type of mining. It was kaolin, China clay. And I think it used to be very successful before many other sources of much cheaper China clay were discovered around the planet, and they never really adjusted to that. Um, so suddenly, so I was here, still pretty green, only done a couple of McKinsey projects, a business degree, and some time at Citibank, and didn't know a lot about mining. And here was this place that unless we could help them, it was going to go under. And that meant the 3,000 direct employees. But more important, there was about 20,000, 30,000 in the community and a small town that were absolutely dependent on this place. Mm. Uh, and there was a huge uh, sense of obligation almost to find something that works here. And, you know, all the leaders of the company were in that and were trying and good on them. They'd opened up and turned to outside ideas, which is why we were there. And then the McKinsey team was full of people. Right? The, the partner had come and grown up in that community and was trying to uh, help it. Some of the managers and the other consultants on the team also brought a similar sense of purpose and social justice from their backgrounds. So that was where really working with the clients, learning from the clients, didn't all work perfectly, but I did start to see that, wow, business has a huge obligation to the environment, to communities, and to societies. And we have to find that magical and, because unless you can also make this a viable business, it doesn't matter how good you're doing you know, things for communities if you're then not there because you actually go bust. Absolutely. And then I guess there's some, probably some fast forwarding in terms of your journey, in terms of what we know. So we came to meet you when you were on a year taking a sabbatical from McKinsey to go and investigate the world of good, which is probably the most noble sabbatical you can have. 
Can you tell us about how you got to that point? So from that project, this is in the London office of McKinsey, and suddenly finding I loved to do this work in mining. And I got to know a fair bit about it, doing three or four projects in a row for that company. Uh, I then find my way to Australia, where there's more mining work to be done. You know, post uh, Maggie Thatcher, there wasn't a whole lot left in the UK, right? So, and came for the adventure. Again, just doing the unexpected, the thing that non-obvious career move, right? So transferred down here with McKinsey, uh, stayed for a year working mainly in mining and associated sort of metals and smelting and steelmaking type industries and really found something magical here. Mm. That, uh, there, there was more of a sense that it was, you know, remember the time was late 90s by now. And while the dot-com was, boom was going on, this was real industry. And we're actually making some headway in things like indigenous engagement. There was a sense of employment because we had to get productive, but also we had to preserve skills and jobs in real industries. Uh, China was just, you know, over the horizon starting to take off. There was a, a, a sense that there was some growth there, but no one really knew it. So that was a wonderful experience. And I ended up staying um, in fact, we couldn't quite decide whether to stay in Australia or not, but I'll maybe come back later to how we, how we made that decision. Mm. And stay we did. And through that and at McKinsey, there was always another terrific challenge. And sometimes that was a new industry. Sometimes it was a new idea in an existing industry. Sometimes it was a new country. And there was this wonderful time, particularly before uh, we had children here, where I would be in China, I'd be in South Africa, I'd be in South America and just traveling all, all around, working especially in mining, resources, manufacturing type settings, uh, and learning, but also helping those clients in those countries. Um, so staying at McKinsey, ending up as managing partner here. In fact, that, the journey to that was through helping our partners and clients innovate, right? We, mm -hmm. we followed our clients to introduce things like uh, implementation, which we hadn't done before. Mm -hmm. And I always liked this sense that we needed to evolve to match the evolving needs of our clients. And I think we were doing well here in Australia under my predecessor, a terrific uh, purpose-led leader called Michael Rennie, who was a mentor and taught me a lot. Um, then... After that innovation surprised me, they said, well, why don't you run the local office here? And together with a terrific group of consultants and partners, we continued to innovate. And I think the McKinsey today is very different to the one of 10 or 20 years ago in that we are much more into digital analytics, serving all parts of society, including public sector, social sector, not just big corporations and not just strategy. Uh, so I, that was a wonderful journey as managing partner there. It's uh, very much not a CEO, right? It's a servant leadership model, which I wasn't always very good at. Sometimes I tended to be more like the CEO, soon got put back in my box by the local partners. We should come back to that later. Yeah. <laughs> Big learning. And uh, I think I'd say I loved every day in that role. But then I don't miss it a bit because these are five to six year roles. I'd got over five years. We had a brilliant band of senior partners ready to step in as my successor. I just suddenly thought it was just over one of these lovely sunny January days on the beach that now's the time. I'm going to tell them that I'm stepping down. They need to find a successor. And then the question was what to do next. Mm -hmm. And while I think traditionally 
there's always another role in McKinsey, right? You might move to another geography and lead that, especially if they thought that Australia had been a relatively successful place, or mm. maybe it's uh, a global sector or functional practice. For me, that, that wasn't obvious that I wanted to do either of those things. Um, and the idea of the sabbatical came up, which I just thought called me, mm. called me in a super compelling way. And how did that idea come up? It was partly a colleague had taken one of these. They're, they're very, it's a very good program, very generous, very enabling mm. program that all senior partners, once they've got over a certain 10-year years of service and so on, are eligible for. There's probably been, I don't know, 5,000 plus senior partners ever in Global McKinsey eligible for this program, but less than 20 actually took it. Wow. And uh, I think I was number 15 or something like that. So a colleague had actually done that out of Sydney and had a really good experience. So I thought, I'd, yes, well, I know this exists. I know it's real. And there's things that I have been curious about, and that's been welling up inside me for the last two years, I'd say, as managing partner here, that I wanted to go and explore. And in particular... It was this curiosity that how can business be successful in the future unless we are serving all stakeholders? Mm. We absolutely have to create value for the environment, for society, and our broadly defined society as not just employees and customers, communities, but it's also the people we don't serve, the people who aren't customers or employees, maybe because they can't afford to be. And um, put all that together, serving the planet, right? Serving the planet in a very human as well as environmental sense. Mm. And through that, I thought, well, maybe you can be even more successful as a business for shareholders too. Mm. So let's go and explore that. And there was another line to my inquiry, which was also something I'd call coaching psychology or coaching mm. and learning from folks around the world who uh, you know, were either doing courses or had particular books or publications I really liked in that space. So the idea was I was going to spend, you know, third half of my time inquiring into business purpose, probably a third of my time on leadership psychology, coaching psychology, including time at INSEAD and Harvard and places like that. And then also really reconnect with my family because my elder son, Sam, uh, was in year 12 that year. And you know what? I always tried to be around a lot, but being managing partner of McKinsey, it's it's a it's tough. Sure. And I was feeling here. I just he's one more year at home before he's off to uni. I'd love to be around for that. So it was very selfish. By the way, people say, "Oh, isn't that good? You were there for Sam." I said, "No, no, I was there for <laughs> me." Just to be really clear, Sam, I'm sure could have survived without me, but I really wanted to have that year. Although I'm sure he appreciated it. I think from time to time he appreciated it. I say, no, I think he did. I think he did. Um, so you've, you've delved into the sort of three buckets you were thinking about your, your sabbatical in. I was wondering if there was a, what are the thought processes went into planning that year? I would, I would just get excited thinking about it, actually, if I had a, a year just to, just, to, just to explore and follow my curiosity. Um, and I think the three areas you chose are not dissimilar to what, what I would mm. do as well. But... Yeah, how how were you thinking about spending your time in those buckets and and 
how did that survive contact with reality once you once you got out there? And remember the year we and had plenty yeah, of yeah, reality. Yeah. This was 19 to 20, yeah. right? So I wasn't too long into it before reality really started. Yeah, strong. some of the, some of that learning you talked about doing in <laughs> other places, I presume, didn't happen. Some did, some, but yes. Then post all the things I was supposed to do post March, which was a couple of trips to Boston and one to Paris and one to London, they didn't happen. But instead, lots of other good things did. And I guess I tried not to plan too much, but I wanted to have some themes, wanted to have some things that would be the basis of the curiosity or exploration. So, for example, um, yeah, UTS, uh, I've been on the um, Vice Chancellor's Industry Advisory Board at UTS. I think it's a wonderful institution and does a lot of good work in not just education, but also social purpose. So I had the opportunity to be an honorary industry professor there. Uh, for the year in the business school. So that was one thing that was almost like, yes, there's a marker, I'll spend some time on that. Don't exactly know what I'll be doing there, mm. but they're great people, I'll get to meet them, collaborate, maybe do some research together, who knows. And then there are obviously the uh, courses around the world that I'd booked, things that I'd really wanted to do. Uh, like the Ron Heifetz uh, course at uh, Harvard Kennedy School on adaptive leadership. I'd always wanted to do that, so booked on that. Did a lot of stuff through Mobius, which is another really good organization mm. that does, uh, I guess, new forms of leadership. So I'd booked um, several of these things, so I had markers there. And then I'd stepped up to chair a not-for-profit that I'd been involved with founding as well, because I thought I'd have more time to do that, so Generation Australia. Um, and there was, you know, several of this. There was a group of CEOs who'd agreed to meet together to explore social purpose, and I convened that group. The BCA had asked for some help just with a, a theme or two. So I'd got enough out there that I thought, let's try it. Let's mm. see what happens. Because one thing, the meta-learning was you can't be too prepared. Mm. You have to get out there, try things, see what works, see what doesn't, learn either way. And then you know, find also unusual connections, like between the group of CEOs, there were some of them and UTS, or between Generation and some of the work going on at Harvard, whatever it was. I think those connections, I would never have been able to see them, plan for them. And if I'd have tried to plan too much, I would have missed it. Yeah, I think that's an amazing way to think about it, some sort of vague structure and then the flexibility to, to figure things out as you went along. And, you know, sometimes I'd write, I'd write up what I'd learned, particularly from the UTS discussions and collaboration, just into a short paper at stages, like after six months, sent it around to a bunch of people and immediately would get more ideas, more yeah. connections. People would say, oh, that's really interesting. Come and talk to our organization about it. And I'd do that. I'd say, look, this is emerging. It's not McKinsey standard final recommendations. Mm but I will learn with you. So yeah. let's explore this together. Tell me the bits you don't like. Tell me the bits that just sound wrong. That'll help. And I actually found much more willingness to accept that style of collaborative learning and engagement than I expected to. And what were some of those connections? What were some of the, the threads that you saw between you know, the different, different aspects of your, your exploration? So I think there is definitely an and there. Mm. There is absolutely a, uh, and, and I could go through some sort of academic standard of proof or I could go through some sort of drivers that, you know, if you become a purpose-led 
organization. I'm talking about business here. There's plenty of great purpose-led organizations, but let's just start with uh, business ones. Then you will also remain and in fact increase your value to shareholders and your profitability. And that was actually quite confronting for some of the folks, for example, some of the professors who thought, well, that's the wrong reason for them to do it. They shouldn't just do it because they're going to make more money. So again, that was a connection I wasn't expecting. It gave a whole new perspective on don't just do this because you're going to make more money. And I actually, I don't think it's true unless you do it really well and you wouldn't be able to do it really well. And I'll explain what that is in a minute, unless you were fully committed. So if you were just doing it to make more money, it would fall over. That's the purpose washing or yeah. greenwashing mm. that we see. Uh, but through probably the best research out of Harvard that uh, you know, George Serafim and colleagues did would say is a 4%. Um, return on assets premium per year from embedding purpose at uh, real, uh, he calls it purpose clarity level inside every aspect of your company. Mm. And I could quote that. I could, some things I did just looking at all the different drivers, like how much better employee retention you have or how much better brand advocacy, lower risk, lower regulatory risk and insurance, lower cost of capital. So you can work top down or bottom up. But there is absolutely an ant there. So that was one thing. Um, second big learning was... Uh, Doing this well is hard. Won't surprise anyone listening to this podcast. Won't surprise uh, you, Phil and Kerry, either. And the sort of four stages of evolution companies go through. And obviously, they're taking initiatives here at all the stages all the time. But there's usually a center of gravity right where they're at. And if I characterize stage one as sort of Commissioner Haynes' first recommendation, obey the law. Right? It's just not doing bad stuff, right? Don't, and it's not just don't break the law. It's also things like don't hurt people, don't pay your suppliers late, don't have fancy schemes to dodge your taxes, yep. don't play fast and loose with your ingredients or anything like that. Um, you'd hope, wouldn't you, that most companies would pass level one and be something further on. But sadly, you know, successive royal commissions and scandals that come out show that we do still need to pay some attention here mm. in a lot of cases. Uh, I do think it's important to get beyond that. The level two, where many big Australian companies are at, is the starting to do some good. I'd call it the corporate social responsibility stage. It's, it's realizing there's a license to operate. We need to do some good. But you know what? Most of that good is done separately to the core business, and that's what characterizes level two. So it could be a foundation. There's some amazing foundations in Australia. It could be like McKinsey would do a lot of pro bono work. So would lawyers or banks. It could be a, a you know, formal CSR-type program. But I always remember, I think, a winner of award for the best corporate social responsibility program in the U.S. in 1999. Any, any guesses? No. 1999. No. It was Enron. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, we do see things happening here, whether it was back in those days, some of the banks here in Australia, mining companies in Australia, doing a huge amount of good through foundations and sponsorships and positive programs and mm. things like Indigenous employment or reconciliation action plans, all of that. But it's all specific initiatives and it's a bit separate to the core business. Mm. And what happens sometimes is the core business goes and does something completely at odds. Yep with the intent of that license to operate piece. Mm. 
So level two, you know, it's better than nothing, but it's a dangerous place to be. So don't stay there. Mm. Don't stay there. And I'd say a lot of big business is there and currently but does bear some risk of slipping back. What do you think the impetus is for organizations staying at level two or, or, or the biggest impediment, I guess, of moving beyond level two to, to which I'm sure you'll describe momentarily, mm. a, a level three organization? Well, and it is because level three is hard. Mm. It's incredibly hard. And that's not just from a capability sense. It also requires to align your stakeholders in a way that, you know, takes conscious, uh, purposeful action to do mm. um, it's probably my third learning is doing that is so important right but what level three is and why is it hard it is embedding that purpose an esg aligned purpose into every part of the company so that's not just your obviously people processes that's very important things like who you're hiring how you're developing them how you're evaluating them how you're rewarding them that's super important but it's also all the other ways that the company shows up what how do they allocate capital how do they make those big decisions what about a product portfolio are they in or out of products you know, are they uh, a, a, well, like CBS Healthcare in the US that got out of selling tobacco because it was not aligned with their purpose to help people live healthier lives, even though that was saying goodbye to $2 billion of revenue. You start mm. to see why it's so hard now, mm -hmm. because to be authentic in level three, you have to make some tough decisions. And in the long term, as CVS would show, as many would show, it's the right decision for the shareholders too. Mm. But in the short term, that's really hard. If you look at their results, like in a year, losing that revenue, and you're going to turn up to your annual general meeting, what's going to happen? Yeah, yeah, getting your board to sign off on that one. Completely hard, isn't mm. it? And a lot of executives would like to, but it's, they may not have the alignment, they may not have the confidence, there may not be the psychological safety mm. in those organisations and boards. And I guess the time and headspace as well. It's not a quick process. It's not a quick process and there's always something else going on, right? Mm. There's always something else that needs that attention. So level three, though, if you do it well, then you start to set up the company that it just shows up with purpose. People mm. will start to take decisions without needing to refer to manuals and procedures and whatever just to do the right thing. So I think as a lot of companies go agile, it's super important to be at level three. Mm -hmm. So a lot of decision-making being decentralized and pushed to the people who you know, are in the right place to make decisions, them acting with the right sense of, yes, this is what we do. What we do is we give the money back even if they don't have the receipt, right? What we do is we give that person a job even though they didn't go to the right university. What we do is pay slightly more for the concentrator because the emissions are 20% less, right? Mm. That sort of thing. And can we just take a moment, you mentioned ESG purpose. So I think this is really important. We talked a bit about it earlier, the difference between true purpose and what sometimes organizations describe as purpose. Could you just talk a bit about what you mean when you're talking purpose? Look, what I mean, and I think what most companies now are starting to do is embedding environmental and social goals into their purpose. They're not just here for shareholders. And you do see, I mean, let's start at the easy part. So often there's a customer or a client recognized in purpose, but increasingly you see the words like inclusive or sustainable 
stakeholders in a purpose statement. And that signifies to me that ESG is not just a report that comes out every year and a set of boxes being ticked for rating agencies, but people have thought about all the different aspects of how that company can positively impact on the environment, not just emissions. Emissions is a big one, but also things like water use, biodiversity, land rehabilitation, and importantly, social and the social indicators, I think this one's mm. emerging as a real sense of uh, importance in Australia now. And we see things like modern slavery that are clearly in there, diversity and inclusion clearly in there, but all aspects of working conditions, fair pay, and uh, just in enabling outcomes for people, whether they're mm. customers, employees, or community members. And then governance, just having really good governance. Mm. So if that is embedded into your purpose statement, it will be far more meaningful than the old Citibank one from 30 years ago of increasing shareholder value. But this will be something that is recognizing the company is here to do some good, not just for shareholders, but for shareholders and society. So that's embedded then at level three. What happens level four? Well, can we, can we just pause on level three? I've got one more question about level three. So I was just... I was just reflecting on the on the sort of similarities and difference between, you know, most people listening will be familiar with the term digital transformation and organizations, you know, undergoing digital transformation and the staggering percentage of those which fail to, to materialize within mm. organizations. And I, I'm I'm wondering, John, in your view or experience thinking about the, the, the similarities or differences between a digital transformation and a purpose-led transformation and why one might be more challenging than the mm. other in terms of, of operationalising that and bringing it to life in an organisation. So I think they're, they're both challenging, often done well together, by mm. the way, because the success conditions are quite similar in some ways, not, not all. Mm. Um, one of the differences is I think the purpose-led or ESG transformation requires a lot more of a system view. So looking at the impacts of the company on broader systems. And uh, it's probably a useful thing to do that in any case in a digital transformation, because if you're going to be investing in retooling or re-teching the company to be able to be smarter, more efficient, more effective, all those things, you might as well do that in a sense that is positive for the bigger system and therefore needing the system thinking. Where a lot of the similarities on the challenges are, it's uh, it all people, right? Mm -hmm. People having to change. and. Uh, you know, I, I feel for them too. I've been there. So you've got to where you've got in a company and you really either you like the job or you need the job, but you certainly want it. And you sort of know what you're doing and you've learned a lot and you might have learned an experience and now got to a, a higher position in that company. And suddenly something comes along that's new, whether that's a new technology, a new agile way of working, or the need to consider multiple stakeholders. And one, one classic human reaction to that is, that sounds really scary mm. and really complicated, and I don't actually know much about that. So I might be exposed as the sort of imposter that I am, that I've got away mm. with for so long, now this rules are changing. Or it might just be, oh, look, there's a whole lot more to learn. I kind of like the idea of it, but I don't have time because I'm working so hard and there's so many deadlines and I'm understaffed. And, mm. But either way, there are these human factors. Or it might be, 
you know what, I've seen these before and the boss doesn't seem to be that convinced, actually. I think they're just doing it because, you know, someone else is bored, consultants, whatever. And the boss, so it'll go away. I'll put my head down. It'll go away and then life will be back to normal. And I think you see a combination of all those things. Mm. And it's important to avoid them, which means going in with real purpose and authenticity and these both digital but also broader stakeholder purpose transformation. Mm. Thanks. So off to level four. Now, by the way, there's not too many companies at level three, right? I think you'd talk to someone like Unilever or Patagonia. They'd say, yeah, we're good level three companies, seventh generation in the US mm. sort of thing. And there are, there are good companies on their way to level three in Australia. And some might be there in many aspects. But level four is very few. And that's where you start to collaborate beyond the organization. So that might be with other industry players on a value chain, mm. scope, scope three emissions, for example. It might be with NGOs, not-for-profits, with government. But those unusual combinations all have something in common, which means giving up some control and power for a bigger cause and a bigger outcome. Mm. Can you give us any examples of organisations at that level? <laughs> yeah, I, no, I, think, I think it's those. If you look at some of the things that Unilever do on sustainable brands, mm. I, um, I you you know will it will be quite confronting sometimes because they have to give up a little bit of mm. control but i've admired i'm not involved with unilever at all or mm. don't have insider knowledge but it seems to me that they show up in the right way and the right intent and just on unilever as well from a transformation perspective their sustainable brands division started with i believe it was with lipton tea um originally but it started there it proved that it could work it proved that it could be profitable sustainable and 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 better for the planet and and slowly but surely the portfolio of brands in that has grown so um just as a as a, as a side going back to that transformation strategy the um the the sort of the agile let's let's prove it can work and do it again um approach seems to seems to have worked well for Unilever. I'm sure there's lots of learning mm. as well. Where do you put B Corps on that spectrum? So I love B Corps. And in fact, Andrew Davies, mm. the podcast you guys did with him, was a joy to listen to. And I think the work Andrew's doing is at least level three, right? You've got to be level mm. three because it's quite a rigorous process that asks you all those questions. And either you're doing it already or by virtue of going through the process, you get a bit more enlightened. Mm. Um, I believe some of them are level four, particularly where they're smaller organizations that actually have to collaborate mm. because they don't have the resources internally. And perhaps there's some beauty in that, that we can learn a lot from faster growth or starting up companies that are just starting up with a different personality and less of a need for control. Mm. But B Corp is a wonderful movement and uh, it's good to see it taking off the way it is. Yeah, we've um, had a couple of B Corps on our podcast recently, mm. um, either already B Corps or applying for B Corps, and it sounds like they've actually got such a um, volume of people applying at the moment that they're, they're struggling to get through them. So that's a great place to be. Great place to be, and, and hopefully just the fact, don't wait until it's your turn in the queue. There are some things you can start doing mm. anyway. Yeah, I, yeah. I love that. Start the movement, right, mm. and learn from others. So I'd say these levels and the importance of getting to level three, but also the difficulty of level three, that was one of the big takeaways or the learnings uh, from the year. Um, I'd say there's a couple more. And one really important one is related to what we're just talking about is how you engage with stakeholders. Mm. So the companies that were doing this well, in fact, the organizations, not just companies, because this is just as true of not-for-profits. Yep. It's just as true of public sector. 
at universities and where you do it well, you engage with your stakeholders in a very different way. Mm. And if I was just to bring to mind two images, it'd be easy if there's a TED talk, we could just stick a picture <laughs> up, but I'm going to have to describe this. We these, can pop one on these, the website. We can, we can link to one. In the <laughs> You'll get it in your mind, uh, Phil, I think. So the classic model of stakeholder engagement, you're sitting across a table. So you might having a nice chat, you might have a cup of coffee or something, but essentially you're sticking across a table or the 2020 version of that is you've got a Zoom or team screen and you're looking at the face of the, of the other person. So that is fine. It's absolutely fine. It's how we have been doing this for many years. So two people sitting across a table, if it gets a bit heated, they might be pointing at each other. If it's nice, they might be warmly having a sharing a cup of tea or something. I want a different picture here, and that is standing shoulder to shoulder, standing, looking out on the world together, mm. right? So that's the image. If Love you that. if you engage with stakeholders like that, it's a different dynamic, it's a different feeling. It's, you are looking at their world. So tell me about your world, and don't just tell don't just tell me about how I, the company, affect you. Tell tell me about how your world works and how I might affect other participants that are important to you. And then I'll share my version of that. Mm. And let's combine the two. Let's put them together and find some ways that we can work together to make this whole picture better, not just on one, whatever it is we happen to be talking about across the table. I love that. That's, that's, such, that's such a powerful image. It, uh, we're, we're taking that and using it. <laughs> you absolutely can. Pride. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you absolutely can. <laughs> and uh, it's funny, when I talk about this to boards and executive teams, I do put up those two images. Yeah. And it's probably the most powerful part of the discussion. I can imagine, yeah. And then, you know, they start to talk about when they've seen both of these. And, mm. and especially, we, you know, I learned a lot from the not-for-profit sector. Yeah. And thinking about a beneficiary and beneficiary at the center of a system. And then who are all the people that have an impact on that beneficiary, as well as obviously the not-for-profit doing good things for mm -hmm. the beneficiary. And uh, I, I did the um, Center for Social Impact. That's a terrific course, right? Mm -hmm. Governance uh, for Social Impact. And that's one of the things you learn there, that it's not just about what you're doing. It's about what the system's doing mm -hmm. and how you influence the system. So true for not-for-profits, definitely true for business. But again, hard to do, right? Because hard to do because you start to lose a bit of control. You yeah. no longer control the agenda. And that's good, but it's scary. And, and I just want to cross the wires with, a, with another part of your, um, your, your sort of sabbatical journey, which was in the world of, uh, of human development and uh, coaching psychology and, and leadership development. How does that play into the thinking of different levels of organization? What, I guess, how does leadership have to evolve throughout those four levels to, to help bring that to life? Well, this is, this, this is my final, this was my final learning, right? This was the, one, okay. the, next, the next one. That wasn't one. planned either. Oh, pretty, yeah. <laughs> and again, a confronting one, because I'll quite be quite open to CEOs and, and chairs I'm, I'm going to now share, because it gets increasingly confronting, right? The, the bit that starts, you also make money. That's not at all worrying to these people. Mm -hmm. Then the, well, there's four levels and it's hard to get to level three. They, oh, yeah, maybe. Got to engage with your stakeholders and go on the journey with, not for your stakeholders. Starts to get confronting. And then this last one, absolutely. Mm. You've got to lead in a different way. Mm. And that different way, I wasn't good at it. 
you know, as I mentioned, I got uh, regular feedback from some of my partners at at uh, McKinsey that I was being a little too directive or a little off the reservation sometimes in our servant leadership culture. Mm. But I think that I was very lucky because in McKinsey, feedback is part of what we do and how we operate. In other companies, it's not, right? You mm. don't go up if you're uh, working in the call center, you don't really go up to the CEO and you say, okay, I just think you turned up in the wrong way here. Tell me what's going on in your life. Um, but when I say showing up differently, it is with some vulnerability. It's not knowing the answers. And I hope with a lot of curiosity mm. about that bigger picture, because the more you're thinking in the system and the more you're thinking long term, then it, the more likely you will accomplish your transformation and be able to take people with you. Mm. And, and that, you know, I, I know from my own experience how hard it is. It sounds easy. But then when you're standing up in front of whether it's 50 McKinsey partners or you know, just your executive team or your board actually opening up and admitting you don't know the answer mm. and you're curious and you want to learn or the fact that this strong recommendation, it might be actually wrong, but we're going to do it anyway because we're going to learn. Please don't fire me, right? You start to see how hard this is, but it's essential. And I think one of the learnings in the um, the, the more sort of leadership and psychology is the difference between complex and complicated mm. problems. So if you or any of your listeners have looked at the Kinefin model, mm. that's like simple, complicated, complex, and chaos. I, we as uh, leaders in business and consulting and no doubt lots of other professions are super good at complicated problems. Mm. Right? They're hard but you can crack them because all the assumptions are sort of, yeah, predictable and can be relied on, cause and effect are linked. You just have to disaggregate a problem and solve the component parts, bring them back together again, and you get an answer that is generally right. It's hard to do, but it's generally right. Complex, much harder, right? Because you have to uh, test, sense, and learn. The assumptions can't be relied on. Cause and effect are not linked, or if they are, they keep changing. Mm. Problem continually shifts. New bits come in. Other bits uh, leave. So how do you deal with that? You just need that tolerance for ambiguities, testing, shaping, sensing, always being willing to learn. And of course, CEO can't do that mm. because it's, they just wouldn't have enough time in the day, right? The whole organization has to be like that. But that starts with senior leaders showing up in that way to make it possible and give permission for the organization to. That's, that's beautiful. I mean, necessity requires the, the more, the, the, the broader your, your thinking on time horizons and, and, you know, systems on systems on systems. Just by its nature, your, your, your level of capacity and knowledge to, um, to get, a, get a handle on that as an individual just becomes diminished the, the further out you're, you're, you're looking. So, so the necessity of partnerships and working with people on those problems is, is, is clear and present. So, yeah, I love that. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. And again, it's, I, make, I don't want to make it sound too easy because mm. I'm still learning this, right? I, I, um, I'm on a journey myself. So they're pretty, four pretty big and interesting learnings. Are you happy to share what's happened since your sabbatical and what's, what's next for you? Well, the sabbatical concluded last year. So I've been back at McKinsey as a senior partner uh, for about six months now. Uh, I, I would say one of the things that was very, became very clear was my own purpose. Mm. So I, I used to think I knew it. I used to think I had a clear purpose. But 
uh, late last year, end of the sabbatical, I had this visceral clarity. What I am here for is to help business, and it starts with business, in a system, right, to thrive by creating value for all stakeholders. So society, the environment, and shareholders. And that has to be through, and I believe business, because that's not just the environment I know and I'm best connected in, but it also is, has a lot of power, has all the, has all the money. No, it has all the you know, people and products and customers and can change a little bit to create a lot of impact. Whereas some terrific other organizations, not-for-profits and so on, probably just a lot smaller and poorer resource. So they will have impact, but they can only do so on the scale that they've got resources. Mm. Changing what a big company can do can have immediate multiples of that. So that's what my purpose and uh, my purpose clarity is. Now, I could do that staying for another 10 years at McKinsey. And in fact, McKinsey, I think, is heading in absolutely the right direction, now realizing that we need to be much more conscious of social impact. Not been like that completely in the past, but I think that is uh, a shift that's happening, uh, has happened over the last year or two, and will happen in the future. But uh, on the 4th of March, which was my 25th anniversary of uh, joining the firm, that's when I uh, came to the realization that's been a wonderful 25 years. I've loved it. I'm hugely grateful. But now I need to live my purpose outside. Mm. So I, I won't disappear immediately, but I'll be leaving towards the end of this year and finding other ways to live that purpose. And do you have any idea of what that looks like? Or are you going into the unknown yet again? Oh, I'd love going into the unknown. If I had an idea, I might not have done it, right? <laughs> but certainly one, one thing I'm committed to do to help my partners at McKinsey is to bring this thinking into the firm and its clients mm. as much as I can. And there are some things that I really want to finish uh, doing before I leave. And then, yeah, beyond that, there are many experiments I can take. I, I love this sense of helping while learning because mm. I've still got so much to learn. On the sabbatical, a few things happened where... You know, an opportunity came up. I was asked to facilitate a board strategy session at Reconciliation Australia, which is an organization I hugely admire. And I said, you know what? I don't actually know what your strategy should be. I've got no idea, but I can facilitate strategy. So I'll do it as long as I'll help, as long as I can also learn, because I want to learn what's on the issues, how it all works, what's beyond. We always had a wrap, but beyond that, what are some of the big issues in reconciliation? Mm. Uh, so a lot of things I did on that sabbatical I put as helping while learning. And that is the spirit that I will take into my next year and beyond of how I can continue to learn, but also to help and then have impact through my purpose. Love that. That might be a, a good place to start start bringing it, uh, bringing it round full circle. And I wanted to throw it open to the table in terms of what were what were some key takeaways from the conversation. And that's probably more for for me and Kerry, and for you, John. I guess what's one thing that you'd like to leave the listeners with? One um, uh, prompt or ask or piece of advice. What would what would that look like? Look, I'm far from being able to offer advice, but the things that have changed me, right, the things that, that I've, uh, I'd say maybe you're already on this journey, but maybe if not, try a, try a couple of things, see if it works for mm. you. So one is just curiosity. Mm. I, I love uh, the sense of being out there, being curious, and it sort of set me free 
a lot of time at McKinsey, there is this, you're expected to be the guru, right? Clients are paying a lot of money. You're supposed to know what to do. Mm -hmm. You're really smart. You're supposed to have these recommendations. And once a client gave us such a hard problem, no one had ever done it before. It was a complete mm. change to like distribution system of a whole industry and no, no one had even dared to question this. And I had to write the proposal. I was the lead partner on it. And you know what? Normally in a consulting proposal, you'd say, oh, here's the case studies, the references. We've done it three times before. We're bringing the same team that's done it in Germany or whatever. Mm. Couldn't do it. I said, by the way, no one's ever done this before. And if I said they would, I'd be lying. So, um, you know, all I can say is that I will bring curious people, smart, curious people who will just be with you in this. I didn't have the standing shoulder to shoulder looking at the world image then. Mm -hmm. I said, and, we'll, and you know what? It might not work. So I fully, you know, admit that we may not be able to find an answer. This may not work. But if you're willing to take the risk, we're willing to take the risk. We will be curious together. Mm. And I thought, well, there's no chance we're going to get hired for that because our competitors <laughs> are bound to bring one in with 20 case studies. But you know what? They hired us. And it was a wonderful experience. And more than that, they made a huge leap forward mm. in disrupting the distribution system in their industry. That all came down to curiosity and the courage to be curious, not feel you have to have all the answers. So that's one takeaway for me, mm. uh, that if you're ever in a situation where you don't really know, but you're tempted to say, oh, of course, it's this framework or it's this direction or this recommendation, open up the possibility of curiosity. Mm. That's amazing. I think my two takeaways, probably the first one, are just how aligned you and us are on purpose, which is probably why we've had such great chats over the last um, 12 months. And yeah, really how you unlock that power of business to do more good for the world. So that's always great to hear. And then the second one is just that image that you described really beautifully, which is shoulder to shoulder with your stakeholders. And I think a lot of the work we're doing in diversity and inclusion at the moment, I think that fits so perfectly and it's, it's given me some thoughts for some of the work that I'm doing, how I, how I use that analogy in that. So thank you. Mm, you stole mine. I, sus <laughs> I suspected yours was going to be the same. <laughs> That's why you got in first. Yeah, um, yeah beyond all the, the, the systems thinking and the multidimensional problem solving and, and the looking at the human development and the, and the ever broadening stakeholder impact. It was, yeah, the one thing that stood out for me was that, that, that powerful image. And I, I think it, I think, you know, a picture, pictures, picture tells a, tells a thousand words sometimes. And, and for me that just brings into sharp focus so much of what we're, what we're talking about here. Um, so yeah, love it. I thought that was, thought it was fantastic. And there's a link there, isn't there, with the inclusion or inclusiveness. That's the expression I really like because mm. it's how you show up as well. And, uh, yeah, if you're truly inclusive, you're willing to suspend your own view of the world and try to embrace the uh, views of others. Mm. Uh, and I love what some of the things I remember the podcast on inclusive design. Mm. Brilliant. I'd never thought of that. But, of course, why wouldn't you bring into the classic way we do design and design thinking mm -hmm. different personas that you need to be inclusive of? Mm. Love what you're doing there. I think that's something you are truly leading the way. Yeah, absolutely. In, in and standing way, yeah. side by side, whoever it is that you're designing for yeah. is such a good way of thinking about it. Mm. Okay, well, I think that's a pretty great, pretty great place to close. If yeah. you don't mind, we'd love to ask you some closing questions. 
Oh, and I thought I was off the hook. Almost. <laughs> um, so the first one, what obsessions do you explore on the evenings or weekends? So maybe outside of the purpose space, is there anything else that, that brings you joy? So mornings is, I'm a runner, so I was like out last mm. couple of mornings. I love running, nothing like Phil, your ultra marathons or whatever <laughs> it is you do. I, but I think was is the, like <laughs> having a having Now as a, new, a new father. <laughs> yeah. But I, I love it. It's my thinking time. It's mm. my me time and it's freedom. It's complete mental nourishment as well as physical exercise. Mm. Um, so a lot of running. Um, on, on obsessions, I've learned how to read again. I think it took a sabbatical mm. to do that because I was always so busy, but I forced reading into my days. Now. Are you going paper books? Yeah, I still do paper books. Well, my wife is a, an author, right? She writes uh -huh. uh, fiction, commercial historical fiction. So um, she's big into paper books. Of course, we have e-books and things as well, but actually the physical form of a real book. Mm. So we have, we have lots of those around our house. I, all hers are hers are the best of course but i also read some others right um and then i still have a little bit in me right that i want to live the sustainability that i espouse mm. and i'm i'm also incredibly like i'm still incredibly tight i have that it's like childhood trauma right <laughs> of having no money and mother was a hairdresser my father had passed away and i had to so i'm a big public transport fan mm. so not a lot of people know that but i i could tell you just about the most cost effective route as well as the fastest route to take advantage of the opal fare system love it i love in, it is in that you your obsession is public transport routes and fares well i love the green <laughs> I, I, I will not I will try to minimize my own footprint right it's the first thing so even though we've got a third driver now in the household with Sam we've only got one car because I refuse to you know add to my own footprint but I love you know saying well yeah if I've got a meeting in Chatswood how do you get to Chatswood mm. and um, from wherever you start or how do you get to the airport by getting off at mascot and getting the number 400 to save 20 bucks and things like that but um, yeah, so it does create for some interesting times on Zoom where the you know, CEOs or McKinsey senior partners on the other end of my phone when I'm late to get to wherever I was going. So is that a bus, John? Are you on a bus? <laughs> <laughs> Good on you. That's brilliant. Um, you touched on books there. Any um, anything, anything, any recommendations, anything that you um, from your year of purpose that really stood out? So, of course, I should, I should use the free opportunity for a commercial to say, go and buy Caroline Beecham's yeah, course, uh, latest yeah. novel, Finding uh, Edie, which is truly, truly remarkable. But, you know, my favorite book recommendation at the moment, it's probably part of the coaching psychology uh, reading. I did a lot on that. And it would be oldish book by Edgar Schein. Now, Edgar Schein's a 90, I think, now, MIT professor. I think he's still around. Wrote a book called Humble Consulting probably 10 years ago. Mm. And I love that book myself. It's about the importance of things like curiosity, but also human care, human relationships. Mm. And I think anyone who's either a consultant or has some sort of helping in their job or their life, yeah, read it. It's only a short book. And it left a real impression mm. on me, a bit countercultural to mm. a lot of the consulting when you're, you've got to be expert and smart and all that. But it's actually also quite aligned 
with when you get an organization like McKinsey at its best. Mm. Yeah. So humble consulting by Edgar Schein. Great. Is, is it like, um, have you read Getting Naked, um, Patrick Lencioni? No, it's, no. It, he tells it as a fable as he, you know, as he's wont to do with his yeah. books, but it's, it compares two consulting firms, one that looks like quite traditional consulting where the experts in the room and one that seems to model what you what you just described with the humble consulting is um, that where the naked service yeah comes from yeah oh, okay yeah. i would love to read that i'm going yeah. to try it out again. Sh- short yeah. short one and, yeah. and really yeah you'll 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 blaze for it really quickly and it sounds like it's speaking to a sort of a similar similar ethos as well so we'll um we'll have to read each other's recommendations and <laughs> compare <laughs> notes next time fantastic just one or two more questions for you which organizations do you admire the most for doing good in the world who have you seen on that journey that you've been like wow these guys are impressive yeah, there you go. What a great question. And I'd say there are some organizations like the Patagonias and Unilevers and probably Best Buy or Seventh Generation that do, you know, do do a lot of good and that's that's who they who they are. There's a few like in in Australia I love that some are, are really starting to move and really starting to uh to try some new things. So the journey companies like Mervac is on or Lion is on. Some of the miners actually mm-hmm. behind all the headlines are doing some really good things mm-hmm. with social value and creating value in communities. Um, so, yeah, there's some I admire there. What I'm really hoping, though, and particularly through the work you you two do, is we can create a lot more. Yep. So in five years, people will be saying, you know, Australia came a little bit late to this in some ways. Notice none of those, they're already here, companies were Australian. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm... I'd like to think that in five years' time, people are saying, wow, Australia has actually become different and the companies and organisations in Australia are leading the way Mm -hmm. on how to combine social and environmental purpose with shareholder returns. And I think what's really interesting for me is I think what we've seen is lots of the new entrants so people like Future Super, Bank Australia, like actually new entrants are doing a really good job in Australia. We've seen some great examples of that. But yeah, the more traditional companies, I don't feel like we've yet seen enough movement. Well, it become, it, it's back to that level two to level three um, difficulty. If, if the purpose is weaved into the DNA from, from, the, fa- from the founding, it, it's, it's almost inevitable that you'll be level three, level four. Whereas if you're, if you're trying to retrofit it into an organization that's been a particular way for 100 years, it's going to be much yeah, harder. Yeah. But then if you can do it, imagine the scale of um, impact. Ab- you absolutely. Can and that's the, yeah. that's, the, that's the fun, challenging, prob- worthy problem to solve, right? Final question. Um, and you may have answered this with public transport, but we'll see. What's the biggest change towards living the most sustainable life you can that you've made personally? I mean, it probably was that. Also, not flying last year. Yeah, and, huge. Uh, <laughs> it's not, not so much of a choice, though. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. But it was wonderful how easy it was to not fly. I mm, thought there mm. would be components I would miss, actually. Aside from the human contact with friends, family, relatives... Mm. There's very little about flying I missed, and I was surprised. Mm. I thought there was plenty I would miss, but no. Um, so, look, that, I think, commitment to w- walking and running, also running as a form of transport. So our other son, James, had a soccer game uh, down probably about 10 kilometres run from where we live. So I ran that yesterday to go and watch the game. So I love nice. this concept of raft, rafting, right? Running as a form of transport. So oh, I love, love it. it. Yeah. I haven't heard that. I, although I think it was a physio who put me onto it. So they might have just, uh, hopefully they were solving for their client <laughs> and not for, not for ongoing, <laughs> ongoing work. No, I'm sure they yeah. were. 
<laughs> so that's another one. If you can run there, it's even better than public transport, right? Perfect. We're both runners, so we'll yeah. be on board it, with that. Yeah, oh, it definitely is. Yeah, yeah, I love it. John, thank you so much. That was uh, that was a wonderful conversation. Um, we're very grateful for your for your time and your wisdom and your insights. And um, where can where can people reach out to you and say hello if they're so so moved? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I'm on LinkedIn via yeah. McKinsey for the next few months, but uh, yeah, I should probably get myself set up somewhere. But reach out via via you two, I suppose, and you can always pass that on. Sure, absolutely. Perfect. Good stuff. Thank All you right. so much. Thank you, both of you. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this episode useful, the best way to support us and spread the message is by telling a friend or a colleague. You can also give us a rating or a comment on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more about Leaders for Good and how you can start making positive change, head on over to leadersforgood.org and join our free community. Thank you.